Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1995, and she's got a great podcast! The movie, Heat. And welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, And this is the show where we are trying to find the 100 best movies ever made. And when we do, we're sending them to outer space. Amy, outer we space, are space, baby! Outer space. And Amy, right now we are nearing the end of our villains section of our hero and villains miniseries. So much so that now our heroes and villains are actually equally weighted. We're in a movie right now. Where, I mean, you could make an argument that it's a movie about a bad guy or an argument that the movie is about a good guy. Or a guy who's good and bad and another guy who's good and bad. Kind of like the two of us, man. That is us. Hey, by the way, speaking of us, I uh, was sent a tweet today, uh, very officially in the mail, and I opened it up and it was an article about how the divide between critics and fans have been widening. And someone said, I would love to hear your opinion on this because you do a show with a critic and you're a fan. I never thought of us as that. But then I also thought, what a great, uh, you know, conversation point here for us to have. Because what do you think about that? I mean, I think that people always put critics in this, like, sphere, like they're not fans. Yeah. Yeah, we're what, antagonists or we're getting paid off to... To write positive pieces or negative pieces. What if, what is everybody frothing about over there in Zack Snyderland? Um, I think that the best critics are fans. Is a tough word. That is actually another thing you had. I I have the hardest time calling myself a fan of anything. Mm. It's very hard. I can be a fan of things that aren't related to the world of movies. I'm a fan of Boys to Men. That's like very easy for me to say. I'm a fan of Pitbull. Also much easier for me to say out loud than it probably should be. But when it comes to actors and stuff, I'm more like I'm a champion, an admirer. But fan makes me, 
uncomfortable. And I don't know why that is. That's really interesting. Is it because you're in it too much or you get paid to be (laughs) critical about it? No, I mean, because there is an element. I would imagine like, I don't know how much of an NBA fan you are if you're playing in the NBA. Like you love the players, you love the game, but you're not enjoying it like a fan because you're in it. Is that like a part of it? I mean, you have to be critical on some level. Like every movie that you are watching for the most part, you have to be thinking about it on a on a level that is going to be deeper than most people will think about something. Yeah, you know, it, it's sort of like we critics have to approach movies holding two almost contradictory things in our mind. We have to ideally be really familiar with the cast, the actors, you know, the actors, the filmmakers, maybe even the cinematographer, the writer, the director, kind of know their body of work. And yet, despite all that knowledge, approach this film with a very even blank slate. And I don't even just mean like a Quentin Tarantino film where everybody feels sort of like heated up about like, am I going to like it or am I going to dislike it? I mean, an Adam Sandler movie on Netflix, like, can you put your baggage down even though you spent your career collecting all of this baggage that you would have all of the baggage, so you know all of the baggage, can you put it down and hit play on this movie and make, and just appreciate this movie for what it is, weigh it for what it is very neutrally? So I think that's why I'm afraid of the word fan, is I feel like carrying it with me would make me feel as though I'm rooting too hard for the movie to be good. I and, appreciate that, and I'd have yeah. to put it. I have to put it down in order to just be like, Introduce yourself to me, movie, but with the widest possible open heart. Nothing cynical, if I can help it, in the slightest. It's interesting because I also feel like the reason why this division is becoming more apparent is because there are a lot more critics, right? We have access to uh, so many people. When you look on Rotten Tomatoes and you look at the list of verified, you know, Rotten Tomato critics and then unverified critics and then fans, it's such... You don't even know where it's coming from. Like, you really don't. You don't know if someone's been doing this for 10 years. You don't know if this person just lives in a town that gets free screenings. Like, you don't know where it all is. And when I was growing up, there were a handful of critics. Like, Or at least the major ones were the ones that you kind of read. Or maybe that was just my interpretation of it because I lived in a bigger city. Yeah, no, that's very true. It's very true. Like, we're in a moment of, you know kind of grappling with changing landscapes of it. You know, like Rotten Tomatoes has done this like big push to make sure that they're not just the same group of like old white guys who all signed up for Rotten Tomatoes when it launched in like 1999 or whatever. Because that was sort of what it was when I was a baby critic. Like Rotten Tomatoes critics were a bunch of people with blogs who were the first people to sign up before they shut the door. Uh, And they kept the door shut for a long time. And now they've reopened the door you know, very widely and tried to put the emphasis more on like who's a top critic and who's not, it seems like. Um, But I've been in, you know, in some of those meetings too about like who is a top critic and who is not um, because they're trying to really like outsource it to other critics who know the landscape really well. And it is just so complicated. It is so complicated. Well, Well, yeah. And I think Rotten Tomatoes, I love it. It's great. I look at the site and I see, you know, if a movie is good or bad just by if it's over 70 percent, I want to watch it. But also what they pull from each review often is like um, maybe a controversial line or a barb or a little bit of like a like a roast on the movie. And you don't really get a full taste of what that critic is writing. You just get a line. And I think that often misrepresents the beauty of a full review. Yeah, I mean, oh, we're getting into the weeds of the gamesmanship of Rotten Tomatoes, which is the thing that I am fascinated by and uh, and 
could talk about for a thousand hours. If you've got a bottle of whiskey, let's sit down and we will talk about it. Um, because even in that, there's like some critics that pick which line Rotten Tomatoes uses and other critics who just have Rotten Tomatoes uploaded for them. So, so, it, so then there's like, you get into like, for me personally, I like to upload my own line because I like to right. pick what gets shown. And sometimes maybe you pick like kind of a teaser so that you're hoping people click on it because you're also hoping people will read your review if you're picking your line. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, Because I, I guess like part of, I'm aware that one of the ways I write is that I don't have a lot of good thesis statements. I'm not even a person who I think like writes reviews in a way where my my words get pulled for ads very often. Like it's just sort right. of not me. I'm not like a, the kickiest film of the year. That's not really how I like to write. Um and so it's always even a struggle to figure out what line I pull out because to me, my reviews aren't even written like that. Like they're not even, I don't like so to sum funny. them up. It's like, it, it, this is, it gets so dense well, it becomes, in my head. It becomes like the thumbs up and thumbs down of, uh, you know, of criticism. Like we took these two reviewers who are great, uh, Siskel and Ebert, and we gave them thumbs up and down and that became the review, right? And this is like another version of that. It we're minimizing like the art of review, like the Pauline Kale, the real like journalistic side of review to this other thing. And I think it's more open to people, but some people come at it probably with no journalistic experience. Some people come at it with, you know, a lot. Some people are just a fan of movies and have a blog. It's a very weird system. It's super weird. Hey guys, actually, uh, I don't know if you saw this. Someone was sharing a Siskel and Ebert, and I know we're, we're talking about Siskel and Ebert, right. and we're big fans of how they argued with each other. Um, they Someone shared this uh, clip on Twitter. It's titled, This is the Peak of Film Criticism. And it's Siskel and Ebert on an episode where they reviewed both Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket and also the movie Benji the Hunted. Right? <laughs> And and uh, Ebert finds himself in a position where he is giving Full Metal Jacket a thumbs down in its own context and Benji the Hunted a thumbs up in its own context. And wow. So this is them arguing about it. Just check this out. But, you know, the real uh, buried subject here is our disagreement about Full Metal Jacket. And I would be very surprised if you like that movie in 30 years as much as you like this one today. I don't think it's going to hold up that well. It's not one of his great films. In the, in the world of films as made today, Full Metal Jacket is a film to recommend. Full Metal Jacket is a very, very fine film. My opinion is the Full Metal Jacket is not Kubrick at the top of his form, which we've just seen here. Roger, it is not as good as those two films, which are among the greatest films ever made. Mm -hmm. But for you on this show, to give thumbs down to Full Metal Jacket, I think is a gross mistake. I think it is a film worth I think seeing. I'm trying to put the movie in a context, and I'm trying to tell people that it is not as good. And as this is a show where you give Benji the Hunter a positive review and not... Now, Gene, film. that's totally unfair, because you realize that these reviews are relative. Benji the Hunter is not one-third the film, one-tenth the film that the Kubrick film is, but you know that the same thing happens, that you review films within context. Mm -hmm. So it's not fair for you to compare those two reviews. And you know it, and you should be ashamed of yourself. No, I'm not. Now let's take another look. <laughs> I just thought that was pretty germane to what we're talking about. Yes, here. absolutely. Yeah. No, because, yeah. I'm so team Ebert on this. Beyond Same. team Ebert, you can only judge a film based on what the film is aspiring to be. Exactly. So, you know, I saw this same piece going around and I just every time anybody ever refers to the Rotten Tomatoes fan score, it's just it is it's not reflective at all about what fans actually feel about the movie. And it's used as that constantly. Uh, there's all, all sorts of fans online that are really specifically like brigading these review sites. Yes. Uh, usually for political reasons, uh, especially people who like crowd like say like a Dave Chappelle review that got bad reviews and be like, we're going to give it good reviews because we're against the woke crowd or whatever. Like I, that's up to like half the people who vote on these Rotten Tomato sites. 
Well, they were talking about that a lot with The Last Jedi. Uh, you saw that with um, Zack Snyder's Justice League. You know, and what we've seen years away from those releases is that there were these big campaigns and the audience, like, want wasn't there. I mean, uh, most notably with Zack Snyder's Justice League, uh, which I liked and I enjoyed my watching of it. But that fervor that we were to believe online is not there. And I think it does help maybe to walk away from some of it and just find a reviewer that you like or two and read those because this aggregate I don't think is representative of really anything because I think the idea behind it is great, but the internet is becoming so big and bold that it's hard to really craft like, well, what does everyone think? And, and the truth is we could all sit together in a room and talk about our favorite movies and maybe there's one or two overlapping ones, but like that's that's what we are. we we're all movie watchers. I know Amy, you're not a fan, but we're we are <laughs> we can all have opinions on these things, and, and and opinions are what I mean. That's what we argue about with our friends. That's what we're doing on this show. Like this conversation is that like we aren't always supposed to just have one agreement. Like these are the ones that we agree on. We talked about that with Citizen Kane right from the beginning. Like, is it the best? Maybe I don't know. I'd love to look back at it now in a way because. We've done so many. Like, where does it hold up now? Like, I was a kind of a neophyte in in uh, in classic film, and we watched that. I still feel like I am, but I'm much deeper into it now than I ever was. Can I say, we've been doing this show what fourish years now? Yeah, and this is the first time in my memory that we have had a topic so passionate to film lovers that both Devin and Josh have been like, we are talking in this intro. I know. It's Rotten Tomatoes, we are here. <laughs> Sorry, I, I have lots of thoughts about this all the time. I, I, I care about criticism. No, I really I care not. about what Ebert's saying. I really think it's the most important thing on earth to exactly what Amy said, go into a movie absolutely open-hearted as you can possibly be. Uh, the other film critic I really love that I mentioned occasionally, Mark Kermode, he always says, hey, it could be Citizen Kane about every movie, however right. silly it sounds. Paw Patrol, who knows? Could be Citizen Kane. You don't know until you've seen it. Look, I will tell you this. I just watched Paws of Fury. Paws of Fury came out for maybe a week. Uh, Super Pets was definitely the one that uh, took a lot more oxygen up in the theater. It's a DC pet animated film. Paws of Fury is really a riff on Blazing Saddles with Mel Brooks. I have to say... For my money, Pause of Fury is hands down funnier, more entertaining, and well done than Super Pets. And it was just, it's kind of fascinating to me. Like, I've watched a lot of these, we've talked about this a lot, a lot of kids' movies. I can discern a very strong difference between something that's well-written, something that's written for an adult, something that's written for a kid. Uh, and that movie makes my kids laugh. It makes me laugh. June and I were talking about it last night. We're like, this movie's pretty funny. And I just love that they have a movie that's like a kid's version of Blazing Saddles uh, set in the world of like, um, like feudal Japan, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, but it's, it's, you know, you have to be open. I think that's the one thing I've definitely done more of just allowing myself to go in a little bit, uh, not blind, but oh wait, what is this? Let me watch it again. And I, I think that one of the best parts of this show for me has been reevaluating opinions on movies I thought were just okay. You know, Paul, as myself, a critic who really defended giving a fresh score to the Talking Cat movie Nine Lives, 
I thank you for sticking up for Paws of Fury, and it, at, which is out of 53 right now in Rotten Tomatoes. Doesn't seem like a fair score. I have yet to see it. I actually really need to see it. And you have sold me with your personal passion. You know, and, and maybe it's also the world in which I'm watching it in. You know, I'm watching it surrounded by kids who are laughing, where I will say uh, I've watched other movies with my children in theaters, and it's been deadly silent. <laughs> and it's not a drama. So, uh, you know, what can you do? Uh, you know, you can't. The the ultimate uh, judge if a movie is funny, in my opinion, for kids is it are they laughing? And uh, that's a you know what if it works, it works. So anyway, I'm glad that we got into this conversation. I never thought of us as a critic and a fan, but I'm also happy to hear everybody's opinion on what this is. And I think it's it's really about like this dialogue, these conversations, and that's really the the best part of it is like engaging in and listening to why people don't like something or why they are engaged. Like I got what Ebert was saying about Full Metal Jacket. I don't know if I agree with it. Now it is 30 years later, but I don't know if I would say that's one of my favorites. It's great, but it's not my favorite Kubrick. But is Benji the Hunted your favorite Benji? Benji goes to Aqua Marine Land. That's my favorite one. They put him in a full scuba. I was what? obsessed. That's a real oh. movie. Oh yes. If you if you type in Benji goes to Marine Land, you will see Benji in a full diver's costume. I'm talking like a fishbowl helmet on Benji in a diver's costume. I had that book. I got it from the Scholastic Book Fair, and I loved. I just the idea of a dog going scuba diving was mind-blowing. A real dog. Practical effects. No bullshit. You are not kidding. I did Google it. He does have a big... He looks like one of those, um, like, aquarium toys. Yeah. And he's <laughs> staring down a dolphin. Jesus Christ. Yep. Benji goes to Marine Land. You can't mess with perfection. Oh, my so, God. There's a still of him actually swimming. So if, yeah. if, I, was, uh, if I was Ebert here, I would say, Amy, yes. Benji the Hunted is good, but you cannot compare it to his other films like Benji Goes to Marineland, which is one of the best films ever made in the Benji universe. I mean, it is good, but it's, in 30 years, you're not going to remember Benji the Hunted. You're going to remember Benji Goes to Marineland. That dog swam with a dolphin. Wait, did somebody let Quentin Tarantino into this show? <laughs> no, no, you, well, you don't understand. No, 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 no. What you don't understand is Benji, okay, Benji is, Benji is, okay, he is one of the best dogs ever in a movie and then then, then I'm so glad that he never should kill a dog in a movie uh, by the way Quentin Tarantino uh, causing headlines wherever he goes uh, I, with everything really coming down on Truffaut or is that the big light like yeah really just saying not uh, saying an inept filmmaker and I don't I don't uh, I don't subscribe to that being true or false I just was like wow that's a hot take and that's why I love uh, video archives. If you're not listening to video archives, check it out. It's fun. And it's like, for opinions like that, you got to listen to that. Although I disagree with his Moonraker <laughs> opinion. Moonraker is a, a fine movie, but I don't, not as much hate as he wants. That, uh, that, the, the video archives podcast did make me rent Demonoid, the movie they were talking about where there's like the creepy oh, severed yeah. hand. That was fun as hell. No, it's a real fun, it's a real fun thing. I, there's like a hope that I have that part of the Vista Theater will be like a recreation of the video archives video store and we could have access to some of these uh, these movies. Or, I mean, we can find them all over the place. I just bought a region free player. Ugh. You know, Amy, a podcaster once told me, uh, don't get yourself attached to an intro that you can't walk out on in less than 30 minutes. So let's unspool it, baby. Gone. Bam. Boom. Is this going to be the whole podcast? Maybe you doing just a few, <laughs> few minutes of it. 
The year is 1995. People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive is Brad Pitt. Time Magazine's Person of the Year is Newt Gingrich. And Byte Magazine's Best Thing Online is... Home pages. That's right. Good old fashioned home pages. Uh, a domestic terrorist bombing in Oklahoma City kills 168 and injures 700. A California jury finds O.J. Simpson not guilty, and Michael Jordan returns to the NBA. Some of the movies that we've talked about in this year are Apollo 13, Toy Story, Clueless, and today's film Heat. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And what was on the radio? Heat. It is written and directed by Michael Mann from the seedling of a true story that happened to a guy that he once knew, a a colleague. And he took this story, he nurtured it for two decades before this film came out. So in the 1960s, his friend, a Chicago cop whose name is Chuck Adamson, found himself in pursuit of this career criminal named Neil McCauley. And he realized that he thought McCauley was, you know, a hell of a guy. Smart. He respected him. And yet when guns were drawn... Chuck shot and killed Neil because cop and robber were the roles that they had accepted in life. So Chuck tells Michael Mann this story in the 70s. Mann turns this story into a TV film in the 80s. More on that later. Then he remade it again as a film 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 in the 90s, where it got a lot more time and money and attention, thanks both to Mann's own rising star and to his cast. You have Robert De Niro as Neil McCauley and Al Pacino as this fictionalized version of his cop friend, now named Vincent Hanna. The other crooks in the film include Val Kilmer, John Voight, Dennis Hasbert, Tom Sizemore, and the other cops in the film are Wes Studi and Michael T. Williamson, and the women who kind of sort of love these guys, even as they know that they cannot compete with the attention of hot, sizzling crime, are Amy Brenneman, Ashley Judd, and Diane Venora. Take a listen. In the city of Los Angeles. Recognize the M.O.? M.O. is that they're good. If you think these guys are scoring more than passing through, I doubt it. A relentless police detective is on the trail. What do we got? Of a master thief. You're fugitive number one with a bullet. It's double the risk here. You're wrong. It's four times the risk, and I'm double the worst trouble you ever had. Clear! And his reckless partner. The bank is worth the risk. You should take it down. I want full surveillance, 24 hours, round the clock. We never close open seven days a week. Assume they got our phones, assume they got our houses, assume they got us. Bam, bye-bye. Heat came out on December 15th, 1995 and did very well, even though it did not get, astonishingly, a single Oscar nomination. Single Oscar nomination in any category. Maybe the Academy had not forgiven Pacino and De Niro for doing this on-screen TV team-up that happened a year before at the Oscars. The nominees for Best Picture of the Year are... Forrest Gump, Wendy... Wendy Feinerman, Steve Tisch, Steve Starkey, my eyes, producers. Four Weddings and a Funeral, Duncan Kenworthy, producer. Pulp Fiction, Lawrence Bender, producer. Uh, Quiz Show, Robert Redford, Michael Jacobs, Julian Cranin, Michael Nozick, producers. The Shawshank Redemption, Nicky Marvin, producer. 
And the Oscar goes to Forrest Gump, Wendy Finneman, Steve Tisch. You know, interesting fact about that, uh, I don't blame them for giving it to Forrest Gump, but the reason that Michael T. Williams is in this movie, I don't know if you know this, but Michael Mann and Al Pacino were so upset that Michael T. Williams was not uh, given the Oscar for that role that they paid out the actor who was originally cast in his part to walk away and they hired him. They're like, you were done dirty. You should have gotten an award for that. You were too good in that movie. You're going to be in our movie. So that is the reason why Michael T. is in this movie, which I thought is fascinating. That is fascinating. Wow, thank you for that. So some good some good things come out of Forrest Gump winning and losing awards. <laughs> Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So he instantly ascended into movie lore as the first film, film, film that Pacino and De Niro did together, which was reason enough for audiences to flood the theaters and this for, the, for this film to make millions of dollars, even though they only share two scenes and a shootout. Uh, but this partnership satisfied this longing, this itch, this passion for connection that you can hear in the number one song on the Billboard charts that weekend. It is One Sweet Day by Boys to Men and Mariah Carey. Sorry, I've never told you all I wanted to say, and now it's too late to hold you, cause you've flown away, so far away. By the way, Paul. This song was number one during another film that we have covered on this show that also came out in this time. Do you remember what it was? No. Uh, I'll give you a hint, eh? That was a very bad hint. Fargo. <laughs> oh, wow. Jeez. That was a, I didn't even <laughs> know that was a hint. That I thought you just, your microphone cut out. <laughs> um, you know, Amy, it's so interesting. This movie, I was thinking about this movie a lot um, recently. I think after our conversation about White Heat and and talking about this evolution of cops and robbers, where this movie comes in is at a really interesting time, kind of at the, the birth or the public consciousness of Quentin Tarantino being this new face on the scene. Like the year before Pulp Fiction comes out, Natural Born Killers, like this meta version of what these movies are, right? Like a cop and robber film, right? And I think 
in many respects, as things are getting meta, people are cracking jokes and all this sort of stuff. This movie goes in a different direction. It goes straight down the middle. And I think when I first watched this movie, it's why I don't feel like I connected to it. Because what I went in wanting was something akin to natural born killers. You know, I wanted it to be like big and crazy. So the only things I really focused on were the amazing, uh, you know, armor car robbery in the beginning. And then the shootout at the end, it's like, that's what the movie was like these two bookends. And he had to wade through the other stuff. It just felt like, ugh, ugh. and I rewatched it as I got older and it's become one of these movies that I've appreciated so much more because it's not really or I guess I should ask you, I don't think of it as a cop and robbers movie. I, I think of it as much more about people. It's it, it's it, like, I feel like this movie is much more of a sociological study of how people are and the worlds that they put themselves into. Yes, it's under the, the, the blanket of, you know, crime and noir, but it, but to me, it's much more about humanity. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's kind of like this, this two layers of how this film was talked about, you know, because when this film was in pre-production, the main thing that everybody was writing articles about was, you know, yeah, both this team up of De Niro and Pacino, but also that this movie was going to have, you know, allegedly like the craziest shootout of all time in one of the bank robbery, you know, in the big bank robbery scene where it took them three weekends to shoot it, where there's just like, I don't even know how long it goes. It feels like it goes on for 10 minutes. It can't I, go No, I think it's like minutes. 20. Jeez. Like it is, it, it's a giant sequence. It uh, is a giant sequence. And it's just like, bang, bang, bang. And it has, to me, like, I think like kind of the loudest, scariest bullet sounds in Since movies Bonnie I've and Clyde? I was thinking about time. Bonnie. Yeah. Yeah, because we talked about that idea that like, uh, was it Warren Beatty, they would use the sound effect of shooting a gun into like a steel trash can. And here, what they actually are using are the sounds of the real blanks in those guns. They actually did like sound effects for it. And Michael Mann kind of threw them out or used pieces of it. But it really is that echoey. Uh, it's so intense. It, it feels so intense. piercing. Yeah. I mean, like their code name for this on the set was they called this sequence World War Three. And like I mean, every time they did a take, they spent like about a thousand rounds of ammunition to get this shooting done, which to me, I, I kind of feel like two ways about it, to be honest. I'm like, it is a gigantic monster sequence, but it also kind of makes me laugh because when you have these, you know, only handful of cops and handful of robbers shooting at each other and they're shooting that many bullets, it kind of makes me feel like everybody's just a terrible shot. You know, they're well, just, they're all very, very bad shots. They're just well, shooting a bunch of cars and like, you know, there's, yeah, Pacino's running around. He finally hits somebody towards the end, but he's really just kind of like firing into space. I'm like, man, this this just makes me feel like cops and robbers have too many bullets. Although they get, they get some good shots off. People get hurt in this scene. This scene is massive. I want to just talk about one thing that if I don't talk about now, I'll forget it because it's totally off topic. But um, that movie, Daddy's Home, that script was around for a very long time. Wait, the Mark and Wahlberg movie? The Mark Wahlberg, Will Ferrell movie. And the bit that was in the original script that I read that made me laugh so fucking hard was that, like, Mark Wahlberg's character apparently had this amazing, like, DVD setup, surround sound. And one of the runners of the movie is he was always playing that 20-minute shootout. 
And so like everyone in the house was constantly under the barrage of just like, bah, 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 bah. and it was like, isn't it great? It sounds like you're there. Like this it just such like the most unnerving noise. And it was like, it just, it always made me laugh. Like what a great defining thing for a character just to be playing like <laughs> that sequence over and over again. Uh, but it is like, it is an unnerving sequence because it also, going back to what we were talking about with the Tarantino of it all or Bad Boys, there's no quips. You know, in many ways, it's a very choreographed sequence where you're, you know, every move is very deliberate. It's not sloppy. And Michael Mann talks about this, like this idea that, I mean, we'll get into his research. You already mentioned it briefly, but the idea that, uh, you know, he understood that police officers, when under attack from like an army or from very skilled professionals, go into absolute chaos mode because they are never used to being under gunned, right? They're used to being the force that has all the equipment. And so that was a big part of this sequence was creating this chaos and the cops' inability to be able to effectively combat it. That was something that was a researched fact. And that was part of uh, the gang's, uh, you know, mentality. That's why they carried that many guns. If it did come down to that, they would basically bombard the cops that way so they could get away. And so in a weird way, what you're saying is, yes, the cops are a bad shot, but that I think is true. But, you know, Vincent Hanna, Pacino's character, is able to stay on target and move forward because he is one of them. Like, he is the most trained in that in that world, I feel like. That scene to me emotionally really pivots on that microsecond where Val Kilmer is like walking out of the bank, smiling, sees all of a sudden that this is about to go down and um, like just not even a pause, not even a thought, just sort of like, okay, I know what I'm doing for this and I switch gears instantly. It's the most instantaneous, like I'm rich too. I'm murdering everybody. Yeah. thing I've ever seen on an actor's face. It feels quicker even than I think Cagney did. You know, I, I think that these men, right, we're, we're really studying these two men, Pacino and De Niro. And, you know, a lot of times people say, well, they're two sides of the same coin or, you know, that that idea that one is putting all of their energy and intent in a selfless way to do better for the world around them, right? And then the other is doing it in a selfish way to better themselves, right? Like that's really what we're looking at. But they're, they are these two men who are so defined by this unwavering ego, right? They both have this ego about what they do, right? One is I am the best at the scores and one is like I'm the best at taking down the people who commit the the scores, you know, it's like, and I think that that's really interesting. This idea of having an ego about yourself, not being egocentric necessarily, but being, uh, like, just like, I don't hesitate. I know everything about myself. I'm realized I'm so like, they are truly self-actualized characters. They're not living in a fantasy. Like where Jimmy Cagney in the last movie, I don't think you could really, or he could articulate where he is. Yes. He's a mastermind. He has all these, uh, things that he can move on a dime, but it's instinct. These men have like pared themselves down. And that's what the tension throughout this entire movie, knowing who they are and knowing 
when they make these mistakes. Like you see it on De Niro's face when he goes to kill Wayne Grow at the end, coming out of the tunnel. You see this moment of, fuck, I shouldn't do this. And and that one moment destroys him. Like, and and I think that you like even the first moment of of Pacino in in bed with his, you know, why is it his wife? I think so, or girlfriend. It, it, like it's his wife, but the his his loud kisses. Have you ever heard kisses as loud as the way that Pacino kisses? I would only expect that from Pacino. He does everything with a little bit of verve, but even that scene is full of tension. Like you feel like it's it's working, but it's not right. Right? It's like he knows he's he's putting a square peg in a round hole, and you get that from that first moment. Like can't have coffee, gotta go. It's like it, you know they. They both know when they're not doing something that is going to give them the right result, but they're trying. They're trying. Like Pacino and De Niro are both trying to like kind of break their ways, but they but they know themselves too well. Well, they're both workaholics, right? Right. Yeah. And 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 their careers come first. And what you see in their in this film is like the arc of them seeing if there's another way that they could live and deciding that there isn't. Right. You know, like like Pacino, I think it's important that he's introduced kissing because part of the arc we're going to see him go through is he's going to be so obsessed with his work that he's going to lose his wife. He's going to lose his family. Like Again. He's going to lose the whole thing. Yeah. For the I third mean, the, time, his like yeah. third wife. You know, he's, But I think don't you think that the reason why they put the Natalie Portman section in this movie is to show that, yes, he is obsessed with. You know, he only is who he's hunting, right? Like that idea. Like, but it also shows that he does have a deep belief in humanity. I think the reason why Natalie Portman is there is like you see him drop everything for her. He saves her, right? Like she's I mean, what else would you do? But like he is affected by that. Like he he is aware of her more than the mother is, right? And I think you see that with the mom reaching for the pills. Like, what are those? What's going on here? And he just seems more tuned to people's needs i don't know if he's going to fulfill them or he knows he's letting them down but there's something interesting about that natalie portman people go cut that cut that out you don't need that stuff i'm like i think you do because i think it does ground him in like his understanding of his core understanding of people because i also believe that these two people understand people around them well i think at that point in a way like their mutual obsession with each other de niro and pacino has driven him to being in almost the same place. Like both of them are homeless. You know, he's go he's right. show he's showing up at a hotel where Natalie Portman is in the bathtub because he's been, you know, he's had to leave his house because he's getting a divorce. Same thing with De Niro. He's been made. He has to leave. He's on the run. He knows he's being watched. They both pushed each other to be like kind of wild and on the streets. But also I think I think that Pacino kind of can't wait to leave Natalie Portman at the hospital and get back to work. There's a, he's itchy at the same time. When, when, I, when yes, his wife I, is like, you can go. He's like, okay, bye. But I think what it is, is he can compartmentalize, right? Like he knows like, and now I'm going to do this. Like he, he gets off on like where I think the moment that you said that you talked about earlier, when they go into that bank heist and then it goes from, we got the money. It's successful to gunfight World War Three. That switch is the adrenaline. That's it's like point break, right? This idea of like we're going into it. We're gonna we're moving forward, and we don't have a hesitation because we are so professional. Like so, I think there is 
this ability to compartmentalize. Like now we're on this, now we're going to this. It's like, it's not necessarily the best trait for a human being to be able to just like lock one emotion down and then move to the next one. It's, it's, you know, uh, but that's what they are. Like he will not let that his stepdaughter just tried to commit suicide, stop him from his ultimate goal, which is getting that, but neither will he let his ultimate goal of capturing De Niro stop him from saving his daughter. It's like he will do both. Like he will, like he is con- consistently doing a juggling act and he may fail because he is unable to like balance his own emotions, but he can keep everybody safe. Or that's, I think, that's, well, I think, the, the struggle, I mean, I, right? I think, I think they're both the best at what they do and failures. Because mm-hmm. they can't, they can't do it all. They're trying to do everything, and they can't. N- neither one of these men can have both their career and love. It doesn't well, work. Like they're trying to, to lean yeah. in. They're trying to lean in and do the whole like I can have everything, girl, and they can't. It's but it's they impossible. also know it, right? They also know it. Like they, and that's the thing that I. Think, but they don't want to believe it. I think. I think that they know it to be true. But they are trying anyway, right? Like they know, like they know it's wrong. They know it's not going to work out. And that's the thing. They're not fooling themselves. And I think that's maybe the difference that you and I are talking about. Like, I believe that they know chances are this is not going to work out, but I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it. And, and I mean, they do both call it. It's yes. like Pacino who calls it with his wife. It's De Niro who's like, well, there she is, but I'm going to turn away and run for my life. Yeah. And and I think, you know, we understand these two men as being so driven by what you said, their career. And I think that that's something interesting. Michael Mann is somebody who apparently is incredibly driven by his career. Like, I mean, listening to him talk about the research for this movie, he'll say like, oh, yeah, I didn't I live in this um, little area in L.A. and you get so used to going to the spots that you go to that you don't really see the other world outside of that. So I called up my friend who was on the police force and we went out on calls every Friday and Saturday night for six months. Six months? You just did research to understand LA? Like, by the way, that's brilliant. But like that amount of research, that's commitment to your job. That's commitment to, you know, this is a movie that shot for 107 days. It's a movie that I think has like 97 locations. So they're moving almost every single day. Uh, but that is this singular focus and the the fact that every single character in this movie is based on a real person, either in jail, like Trejo, you know, was an armed robbery consultant on the movie and then put into the movie, right? Like there are these things like he so wanted to get this right. I think that's why this movie feels so real, but that is a blind, like a, bl- uh, a blinding obsession with perfection and getting it all perfect you know and i think that that can leave you sometimes very empty well yeah because there's nothing else it's so much that i think is like defined man's career i mean because like just to 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 jump back on him for like a little bit you know this is a guy who goes to england like in the 60s right like he wants to be filmmaker he goes to england he starts working in like a really big expensive commercials which is a backstory we've heard a lot like that's what happens to ridley scott it's what happened to adrian lynn they all kind of knew each other in that commercial scene then he comes back to the U.S. He does a TV show called Police Story, 
where he starts like interviewing cops, hearing what's happening with policemen. This is when he, you know, meets like Chuck Adamson. He continues doing work like this. He does a show in the 80s, in 1986, called Crime Story, where like Chuck Adamson is actually like working on that show with him. That's kind of a similar zone. Like, here's what that show kind of sounded like. Crime Story 4 and 5. Ray Luker's reign of terror has taken him to the top of the mafia and now on to Vegas to extend his evil empire. And Torello's not far behind. And he's doing Miami Vice at the same time. So he's been like steeping himself and getting to know real cops, trying to hear the real word on the street. You know, like, I want to know what this is, which kind of makes, you know, the the David Ayers big old grandstanding about his authenticity seem like, yeah, it's it's what you do. It's what, it's what Michael Mann has been doing forever. Well, by the way, but, it reminds me of David Simon, like David yeah. Simon coming at it from the same kind of point of view. Like, I want to tell the story. And I'm so like so committed to the verite of the story that I'm telling that I don't care if it's entertaining. Like, right, the idea, like, I mean, just to go off on a brief tangent, like, when David Simon goes, oh, yeah, the second season of The, of the Wire is going to be about the dock workers. Like, that's because he's like, no, because it's true. Like, I know you love all these, I know you love Stringer Bell, and I know you love Omar, but the dock workers. It's like, because it is, it's like, I can't, I need to tell you how it actually is going on, like what it is. And I think that that, it's great. It makes for great television sometimes and sometimes it doesn't. Well, yeah. I mean, and it even makes for like kind of the, uh, a filmmaker who gets blamed for future crimes because your research is so good that people start watching your movies to be like, how would I do it? Like there's this uh, French bank robber who was obsessed with heat. Like he watched heat like over and over and over again, dozens of times. I mean, this is a guy who like used... He once escaped from prison using a helicopter that like landed in the yard to get out of like a 25 year prison sentence. One one of the times when he like got out, he met Michael Mann at a prison film festival and he was like, you were my technical advisor. Like he is what made me good. I mean, and actually shortly after this film even came out in 1997, there was a huge, huge shootout here in North Hollywood at a bank, the North Hollywood Bank uh, branch of the Bank of America, in which these two bank robbers tried to stick up for the bank wound up getting in this 44-minute-long shootout here in real life. That's what it was like, one of the longest cop shootouts in, like, L.A. history. Both of those robbers were killed. Uh, Eleven police officers were wounded. Seven civilians were wounded. And when the cops went to these um, bank robbers' house, they found out that one of them, Larry Phillips Jr., had a copy of Heat at home. And so it was sort of thought of as, like, this Heat-inspired bank robbery. Well, you know, this idea, though— that Michael Mann wants it to feel real, that it it does look real, is because it was in many respects real. These actors trained with the right guns, with real live ammunition on uh, a police training base, right? They set up the entire situation. They had their targets. They had their cover. It was all like kind of boards and, you know, like uh, not the actual props of the cars, but they did this. And and he wanted people to understand it. He made De Niro and Sizemore and Val Kilmer case an actual bank and then come out with weapons on their bodies, unloaded, but to come out and be like, where are the security you know, problems? Like, so these guys were actually doing the work. And so when you watch these like YouTube videos of like, does that actor hold the gun the right way? When you watch the ones on heat, they're like, yeah, absolutely. Because not only are these firing blanks, these are the real weapons. And these guys have had experience carrying those real weapons. So it does add this like level of intent. I mean, that's why I think those scenes are so intense. I've never experienced anything like this. 
He had us out on a range to learn how to shoot guns. I've done it before. You practice, you learn, people teach you how to do it, where it goes and stuff. Only I've never done it with real bullets. Actually, I heard something that was very flattering that there's a shot where I run out of bullets and I change the mag and I go back to firing. I think it's the Marines. They show the clip telling those maggots, if you can't change a clip as fast as this actor, then get out of my army. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Yeah, I mean, he got so detailed to the point that he was actually even making like Valcom and Pacino walk around with bags on their back that were carrying about what the weight of... $12 million would be so they would understand what the weight of that money would be. And yet, you know, he's thinking about all of this. He's really getting into like the details of the bank heist. He's got this special forces soldier teaching everybody to shoot and blah, 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 blah. Um, but then like Amy Brenneman comes to him and she's like, okay, so we're really getting into these details about our characters and how everything works. Let's talk about my girl. You know, she's like working at a bookshop. She meets this guy out of nowhere. He's kind of negging her at a coffee shop. She winds up being in love with him in two dates. She's probably really damaged, right? She's got like daddy issues. Maybe she's been like, you know, molested as a child. And Michael Mann is just like, quote, no, she just falls in love with him. And so she's like, all right, sure. It, it's interesting because I just heard her <laughs> on like the 20th anniversary roundtable with everybody telling that story. And I read that article where she's like, yeah, like he's like, no, you're wrong. Just do this thing. Just love him. But what she was talking about in the in the 20th anniversary of that was oh that's actually kind of more interesting like to find connection and love here because i do think you know the cliched thing los angeles is a character in this movie whatever bullshit but it's like but los angeles is a lonely place and we talk about like being alone right a lot in this movie this movie you know de niro says like i am alone but not lonely right um yeah he's even referred to by the cops like who's the loner right who's the loner first time we're seeing him we're not on him yet get on it and so i think you have this idea, like Los Angeles is a lonely place unless you have people. So you get the idea that Amy Brennerman is this person who, you know, she came here, she's working as a graphic artist out in Santa Monica. Maybe she hasn't made that many friends yet. And yeah, she's only been here for a year, she says. That's hard. A year's hard. Yeah. And there's some connection and, and maybe it's just the tension. And well, and and yeah. De Niro wants that too. It's like you don't you don't get that he's just trying to fuck her, right? Like he's not playing a game like when he does connect with her and takes her out to like look at the the water and the colors it's like he's he's longing for this too like he has an end game but 
what I think this movie is, is about the prisons that we all put ourselves in, in our own world. Like, De Niro's like, I don't want to go back to prison. I'm not going back there. He's like, well, you live in a prison. You live in an empty house in Los Angeles. You probably move from city to city. Now we know he does a little bit because if you're reading Heat 2, which I'm in the middle of and it's great. Oh, I finished uh, it. We can oh, you did? Oh, I can't wait. Uh, but like, you know, it, it feels like they bounce around a little bit and they, you know, they're going to, whatever. They, there is a transient life for yeah, these characters, you know? But even Ish. so, I mean, I, I accept all of that completely. Mm-hmm. And yet I still feel like the romance between De Niro and Brenneman is pretty weak. Because like, what, I mean, what do we see about it? Like, you know, she talks to him at the coffee shop. They go to his right. home. They have, to me what seems like one of the dullest movie conversations in history. I, mm. I I don't even want to bore people by playing it in full, but I will play like a long enough chunk that you will feel the dullness of it. So where's your family from originally? Oh, uh, Scots-Irish. They, uh, they immigrated to Appalachia in the late 1700s. Where are you from? The Bay Area. Your folks there? Well, my mother died a long time ago. My father, I don't know where he is. Got a brother somewhere. You have a tight family, I can tell. Yeah. Right? And then basically the next time we see them, he's like, run away with me. And she's like, okay. So I, I well, always find that relationship to be it, it, a little rushed. Like I want to say on one, on the one hand, maybe the very dullness of that conversation shows how rare it is for De Niro to talk to anybody. Cause yeah. like, maybe he's telling her the truth. Maybe he's telling her the truth about his life. Maybe he doesn't tell anybody that truth. Maybe what reads like absolute boredom to me is so rare for him to even be that honest that it's like notable. I guess, like, could the most banal conversation be interesting because it's just unusual to him? Are we supposed to think, like, maybe that's why it's special? But it does also read as a little, as unconvincing to me on her behalf. But don't you feel like there's an element, again, just going back to the loneliness of L.A., I'm not saying that they're in love and that they're a perfect couple, but sometimes relationships are just about attention, right? It's just about you know, this connection, maybe this doesn't last, but I think him looking in her eyes, she's looking at, like, they, it may not be the most interesting conversation. They may not have a million, like, there's clearly an age difference, you know, but it's, to me, sometimes, oh, wow, somebody just looked at me. Like, and that, like, and, and I'm not, and I don't think that that's a healthy relationship, but I think that that's what it's kind of capturing. And, and conversely, it's not like, oh, he can't write relationships because I think he's writing a very complex relationship for Val Kilmer and Ashley Judd. And I really like that relationship in how much they don't show, right? Like they, it's all there without a lot of exposition. It's like, it's, you know, this movie feels like a novel, like we're picking up on chapter 12, but there was a lot before. We don't need to go back and give you all the exposition about it. We don't get to see Val Kilmer gambling. We don't get to see that Ashley Judd was a prostitute. Like, we don't get to see that stuff. But it's implied. It's in their characters. It's under the surface on these levels. And I think that there is something about, like, this relationship is just two very lonely people who are just being seen by each other. And I think that that is a lot for these people, in my mind. 
I mean, baby, I think part of what's coloring my irritation on the relationship this watch is having read Heat too, and mm-hmm. realizing that book makes it more clear you're supposed to take their relationship seriously, which I'm like, really? Okay. Do I have to? Because uh, I don't. I don't really want to, to be honest. Like, um, and I, I do believe that man is occasionally very capable of capturing relationships in like a shorthand that I find beautiful. Like my favorite Michael uh, Mann movie is actually Last of the Mohicans. Mm. I love Last of the Mohicans. I mean, that's the movie he does right before this. That's the movie that that's I think a gives him. Yeah, yeah. It gives him, I think, the mojo, the juice to make this movie as big as he does, to make like a 107-day shooting schedule for Heat. And in that movie, you know, there's that, Yes, there's like the main relationship between like Daniel Day-Lewis and Madeline Stowe, but there's that secondary one between like her younger sister, Alice, and then um, the other member of the tribe, Uncas. And they almost don't even talk in that whole movie. They just look at each other a couple of times. And yet, you know, the tragedy of their relationship and how it ends when Wes Studi gets involved and like throws the guy off the cliff. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler. Sorry. Like I sob. Every time that happens for a relationship that doesn't get built up in like the specific ways of like, no, let's see them talking about their childhood or whatever. Like you don't need that. Like well, that's he, the he piano, can right? It there. He captures it there, but I don't think he does as good of a job here. Well, I think that the romance here, and maybe this is also cliche to say, is between these two characters. Yeah. These two men who For sure. They love each can, other. They're more fascinated with each other for sure. Because yeah. I think what we get here is they can't be truly themselves to anyone else but each other. Like, and there's something really poetic about De Niro dying, holding this man's hand. Like, that's the better end. I don't know if Vincent Hanna has an end as, I mean, it's bittersweet, but it's like he dies looking into the eyes of the only person that truly understands him and respects him it's it's very beautiful in a way like it's that is a that is a romeo and juliet kind of ending you know there is something magical there yeah that arc right pacino going from loudly weirdly making out with his wife to quietly holding De Niro's hand as like the music starts. The music in this sequence always really cracks me up, especially when like, you know, the credits really start because it just sounds yeah. like it. Maybe it's the airport backdrop of it all, but it sounds like the music that you hear when you like are boarding an airplane and they're giving you the instructional flight video about how Delta is going to yeah. help you today. I, I'm like, I can never quite decide if I think that music fits or not. I think the music it, throughout this entire movie is really interesting because it can go from like Moby to something that's very ambient. And like what you're saying, like there are these, the sound textures in this movie are really interesting. I think they're yeah. jarring at points. And I think that they are um, like, they are very um, devoid. I think that that ending is devoid of a lot of sentimentality and a lot of emotion. And that, that track that you just played, like you said, it's, it's, it's very, it's nothing. It's getting on the fight for Delta. There is something about that. You know, it's something about this fight in this field. It's, you know, it's compared to the rest of the movie. It's it's so nothing. You know, it's like it's you know it's beautiful. It's a cool idea of where it is, yeah. but it's it's no man's land. They're in a, they're in a 
they're just in a dark field. It feels like North by Northwest in a way, yes. right? But like yes. it's desaturated because so much of this movie is just desaturated to try to be as close to black and white as it possibly can. Well, black, I mean, white I the, and like some lights in the background. Well, they've done some things really interesting with the director's cut. Like I think he only added like 30 seconds, but the, what he really did in the director's cut was add more blue. Like that yeah. kind of the Michael Mann blue uh, I think the movie then pops in a little bit of a different way now because it's like, oh yeah, we're kind of lining it up. Because this, when you're talking about The Last Mohicans into Heat is this really interesting moment because... It's a very big visual pivot. Yeah, because Mohicans is like, I think of like MTV music videos. It's it's very... Um, colorful, like, green. Colorful it made me want to go to North Carolina painting. for college because yeah. I was like, that is beautiful. It's gorgeous. And then this movie is gritty, handheld, dirty. And Concrete, this is like. Concrete, cement yes, everywhere. Like very the much skies like, are either like very white or very black, like no blue, almost no clouds. He's still creating these very artistic images and holding on interesting things in a room or, you know, like, like there's that, uh, there's a famous shot here where you see like De Niro's gun yeah. on a table and De Niro's looking out the window and that's like inspired by a painting, you know, that he saw and he's like, oh, I want to recreate that. But it's like, there's something about the cold, like he went from lush beauty and, uh, and vibrance to like a, a cold. Yeah. It still has the same flair, but it's, it's just, it's, it's an interesting transition and such a harsh one. And it's, it's interesting true. that he kept the same DP. Yeah, like, that's and, the same guy. And I would say that, like, Mohicans is definitely the outlier, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, I mean, Mohicans is a movie that he does because when he's a little kid, he saw, like, the original Last of the Mohicans. And that was the movie he always said, like, blew him away and made him feel like this is what cinema can do. He he attributes that movie to being the movie that inspired him to be a filmmaker. And then, like, Dr. Strangelove for being the movie that, like, inspired him to be a great filmmaker, I guess. Or, mm-hmm. like, the one that he, like, always chooses as his favorite. But he is kind of a colorless guy despite that. Like in the 80s, he was so obsessed with the color black that he would wear all black and he painted his office all black. So you'd walk into his office and it was like walking into like a black hole. And that was his visual aesthetic, even as he's doing Miami Vice, you know, and making like lime green the most popular color on earth. Well, by the way, there is something really interesting about, you talked about that scene, the boring conversation scene. One thing that that's interesting about that is the backdrop, like what this image is behind the two of them as they're having this conversation, like this, the, the, like the, the sun is setting, right? Like this, like this beautiful look of LA and you could never really capture that uh, just because of the way the cameras were done. It's so interesting. This movie is practical for like 99.9% of the movie is practical. But what they did was they shot that scene with green screens in the practical real location shot it then they got the actors out took down the green screens and then shot it at magic hour at like three frames per second or something like that and you know uh really slowed it down so they could capture that lighting that look that is uncapturable you know uh you know like like so it was like kind of created in a computer but it also was taken from a real life thing and he's mixing you know uh different you know uh frame rates and that's something he does in manhunter too i mean they do that a lot but it's like but this is really interesting like that little subtle thing to get that look it's not it wasn't even just about the two characters talking it's also about what's going on behind them and and the importance of that tableau putting them in front of it like like a real painting then you know what i don't know the answer to but i would love to is because, yeah, like these two characters, you know, Edie and Macaulay are always talking on balconies 
or outside mm-hmm. or in the grass for some reason. And there's that later scene of the two of them when he's like telling her she can be free if she wants. And what I would just love to hear somebody explain to me is like, why in that scene, my man chooses to layer on the sound of so many screaming birds. Like the entire backdrop of the scene is just like birds freaking the hell out. <laughs> you want to walk? You walk right now. Or on your own. On your own, you choose to come with me. That's so funny. I mean, he's so detailed. I'm like, tell me the story of these crazy ass birds. But you know that he's one of these people that has that done. Like, you know, it's like, like, you know, Al Pacino is interrogating real, you know, uh, robbers. You know, not not ones that are being busted, like ones that who had been busted and are working for the film. Like, he wants everybody to... I mean, everything you ask him about, and I've listened to a bunch of interviews about this movie. I've listened to him talk on his DVD commentary. These are all things he's like, oh yeah, well that's based on this. And that character is here. And this is that. And this is that. Like there's nothing left to chance. And I think that that's what's so interesting about this movie. It's giant. It's a big movie. It's three hours. In a time when you weren't making three hour movies, it's a movie that comes out and is an epic. Uh, But we're used to epics being like Godfather, family. And this is like, whoa, but this is like, epic like crime movie and i think it, it is and, an well, interesting it's an epic yeah. that takes its time too and yes. even like the godfather is chock full of, of yes, active right, things yes. and actions and scenes and dialogues and plot and stuff moving and this is like i am an epic but you are also going to watch a car drive for two minutes well that that scene that we talked about earlier about when you see de niro make that choice right de niro mm-hmm. makes this choice in the movie to go kill wayne grow and he has this moment which is like you will be free you got the girl you got your freedom you are home free and this moment and i went back and rewatched it because uh michael mann said we can't play this on the podcast so i just recommend you watch it uh because it it's all in the eyes like they shot this you, you can capture the vibe if you want to hear the bit of the sound yeah this is a, a scene that they went back to shoot three times because De Niro's like, we don't, we don't have it. And Michael Mann's like, we don't have it. What is it? Because it's silent and you have to watch on his face this idea to break his own rule, right? He's breaking his own rule. And what is that? What is that moment? And I think it's so... It's a really interesting, like to watch and know that there's so much there in that decision. And like most movies, again, will have him say it out loud or do something. And it's, you know, this movie works a lot in silence. And a lot of it is like, okay, I'm just, I'm taking cues. I'm watching them. I'm making assumptions on these characters. I'm, yes, they're telling me certain things and these characters are telling me certain things. But that moment is really interesting. Why do you think he chooses vengeance in that moment? When he, when he, can he knows that Chris probably will make it, right? But he also knows that the whole city's out for him. He knows that he is moments away from getting away with it. He's got the girl. Why do you think he makes that choice? I, I wanted to see what you think. You know, I genuinely don't know. Honestly, I really genuinely can't figure it out because I don't feel like you see too many cracks in De Niro's right. 
facade up until then. I mean, the way you're describing the movie as kind of like observational, chin down, watching things. That's how De Niro plays this entire movie. You know, this right. is a movie about like a very silent and calculating robber and then also a very loud screaming cop. Um, but De Niro's whole thing is like watchfulness. And I'm watching him in that scene. And I can't tell. I feel like I can read his face when he looks at her and decides not to walk to her at the end. But I can't read his face in in that scene because like he's a guy who has like told us before like we don't have time to like go after um you know killing William Feitner like that's not a priority for us we're not going after Van Zant and yeah I I don't I really I honestly I don't know I don't even know if I buy it I don't even know if I, I buy it but I, I like the way I, I that think... it's staged with like going through the white tunnel passing through the into death I don't know is he deciding to die like does he want to die I don't even know I, I have a couple theories I, and tell me where you think that this is total bullshit or not. This relationship with Amy Brennerman starts to open him a little bit, right? It starts to make him go, oh my gosh, I want, I'm done. I'm out. I've made my score. Let's go on a beach and be done. I don't need to do anything else again. I got like, I... I'm not going to be caught. I got my money. Like, I don't get a sense of him being a character who's like, I need to keep on doing this so I live. It was like, I think it was like, and now I'm out. Right. Um, Whereas not, like a Jimmy Cagney is roiling. Jimmy Cagney can't control. Right. And and, yeah. and Vincent Hanna needs, is going to not retire anytime soon. Right. Like that, I think they're like, so that's the difference. I think that like De Niro will always be smart and have an idea, but he doesn't need it. But that opening himself up emotionally starts like a little fissure of feeling something. And this idea of fuck you, fuck you, Wayne Grow. you fucked up everything without you. My, my son, I'm going to call him a son. You know, it's not his son, but Val Kilmer, like this person who is very close to me, probably the closest person in my life, you almost killed. And you, you know, you, you set us up like you hurt everything. Now my Tom Sizemore's dead. Now Trejo is dead. Like this person is responsible for this domino effect. So when he goes and kills Feichner, you know, and he and he and he takes that down, it's this is the vengeance is back. And I think that like De Niro's character is someone we don't know him before, and you've read the book full, so you may know more than I do, but somebody who wasn't always like this and wasn't always compartmentalized. And this compartmentalization is to keep him safe from his own emotions. Yeah, and the book definitely he, gives an example of why he would have to compartmentalize. He okay, too. So, yeah. that, so, like, so in my mind, I start to think about this opening of himself starts to like let his thing, his emotions come back. And so vengeance becomes the decision. It's not about the cold, calculating, smart, older man that he is. It's more of the violent younger man that he was, which is what I think we see in Val Kilmer. Like you see the joy in Val Kilmer, like fucking popping that guy in the bank, you know, hard with that shotgun. And I just think that that is, it's the, it's a man who is based on logic it's Spock becoming it's Spock becoming Kirk, right? It's like fuck it, I don't care. He needs to pay because at this point, everyone knows his name. His face is on TV. He doesn't have to say it's only for vengeance. Wingro and Fickner is just purely for the satisfaction 
of killing both of those men. It's not, it, they, yes, they, they struck against him, but at this point, his life and his, he should, the smart move is that, the emotional move is that. Sorry, it was a very long thing, yeah, but, but I do think it's wrapped up in that. I hear that. And I mean, I don't want to undersell the agony of like the Trejo death scene of just like staring down at Danny Trejo's like a bloody broken face and then having to do the thing that we saw in Blade where like you have to kill your yeah. friend because he's left in pain and suffering. That's terrible. But to me, like that scene like is one of the more emotionally painful things he goes through in person because like he doesn't really, you know, like have to watch or nurture or do anything in the moment when like Tom Sizemore goes down, it's all panic and screaming and he's running and he's got to escape himself. But he has to sit with the Trejo scene for a long time. And I wonder how much that hurt him in it. But I also wonder, maybe it's just part of like, he got away with everything himself personally. So maybe he's like, I can probably do this. I can probably get away with it. So I wonder knows. if any of this like, he, come, comes down to like, do you think he thinks he can do it? Or do you think he knows that he just doesn't want to do any of this anymore and he's done? I think there's a reason why we see the decision to kill Wayne Grow versus the decision to kill Fickner. Fickner's like, we're definitely going to kill Fickner because that's a given. He he's killed, already promised that he's killing him. Yeah, he's like, he killed, he killed Trejo, right? Like, yeah. Wayne Grow is the domino that collapsed the structure, but doesn't like, didn't pull the trigger, I guess. You know, I mean, he did pull a trigger technically, but but you know what I'm saying? Like there is something about it. It's like, it's greed. It's it's a want. I don't, I don't think it's cocky. I don't think it's like, I can get away with it. I don't see him on that mode. I see it more as like vengeance and the way that he kills him, execution style. Like he does everything... He puts himself in the middle of, there's no reason for him to, like multiple times you see in that, that hotel sequence, reasons why he shouldn't go forward. Just walk back to the car, get the fuck yeah. out of there. And yet he creates this giant scene um, like, and he reveals a, yeah. himself. This is know? a guy who we have seen get like unnerved by the tiniest bump, mm -hmm. you know, hearing the tiniest little bump of a sound. Um, which was also based on a true story, according to Chuck Adamson. To this day, I'll never understand what it was that possessed the detective to get up and walk to the washroom because he couldn't stand sitting in this one position anymore. And, and the man, he had to go. And I had told these two guys, you got to go, you go in your pants or you bring a cup, but you don't get up and you don't move. And when this guy got up and walked across the floor, that's all Neil had to hear. Goodbye. They boogied, and that was it. A tiny bump makes him give up a plan. And here he's like, no, I'm going to create the noise, start the fire alarm, walk right into the thick of actual known danger where all eyes will be on me, and they are actively looking for me. So would you argue that this is like the sides of the coin, I think, are often distilled in this movie as like good guy and bad guy. And I, I want to say that I think that that's bullshit because I think it is about emotions. I think it's about you can live in a life where you make the right choices and and you act the smartest way possible but you leave unfulfilled or you can live a life where you make you're just driven by them like they're both like that's the difference, right? Like cuz I feel like Vincent Hanna is energy. He is you know, he, the way that he 
lives his life is bombastic, right? It, it is, it is, he's leading, like when he messes up, he's, fuck, I'm mad, I'm mad, right? And it's like, you see it with the scene when he catches his wife cheating on him when he takes a TV. Now that's a funny scene. It's funny because he's so angry. He's not violent. He's not going to beat the shit out of Xander Berkeley, but he's going to... This big fuck, I like I don't know what to do. And he's like, the only thing he has is this TV. And so it's like, this is a very it's this, you know, I think if De Niro walked in, he would look at the situation, shake his head, and walk right out the door, right? But he's but but Pacino is so emotion, like he can't keep it together at dinner when he goes out because he's ah, we fucked up. Like there's like there's this energy of him, like he care like he carries the weight. That and that maybe that's the switch, right? There's a switch there because it's sort of like he carries the weight of emotion so much into his next thing, and De Niro is able to extract emotion from everything. So at the end of the movie, what you have is De Niro finally having emotion, and then Pacino being able to compartmentalize emotion, going, Yes, my daughter or my stepdaughter is on the verge of dying. I gotta get back out and catch this motherfucker. And so he kind of does the De Niro. And De Niro kind of does the Pacino for their last moves. And that's what reveals them to each other. I mean, as an audience member, like watching this all play out, the part of it that I enjoy really intellectually is like, you know, who are we rooting for? Who are we going for scene for scene? You know, and it's like there is an, a, a natural tendency, I think, for us and audiences to love the bad guy, the robber, the mm-hmm. Bonnie and Clyde. And like, it's not it's not a, at all unheard of for us to like want to align with De Niro and be like rooting for De Niro to get away yeah. with everything. Right. But so you've got the layer of like cop and robber and like our inclination to kind of like the robber. And then you've got on top of that, the way they behave. You know, Pacino acts more like a bad guy in a way. Like he's more yelling and screaming. He's not in control of his temper. And De, and De Niro does that thing of just showing up and always being calm. And so you're like, oh, he's more reliable. Maybe I trust him more. And then I think the film kind of adds to that and it starts to creep up on you that it's not the screaming necessarily that is an example of somebody being unhinged. It's the calm that is an example of somebody being unhinged. Because to me, the scariest De Niro scene is when he comes home, there's been a big shootout, Amy knows about it, and he's like so crazy in what he's asking her to do while not raising his voice at all. And to me, that makes me as an audience member be like, oh, the things I look for in a character to say whether or not I can rely on them are completely wrong. This guy is nuts. What did you do? That was you? That's what I don't do. I don't sell metal. Would have been okay. You fly out after. Now it's jammed. So we gotta go together. Those, those other people were with you? My friend, Michael. He knew the risk. He didn't have to be there. Rains, you're wet. And so I I like that trick. I like that trick on the audience of like us having us going back and forth on who. Well, I think that this is about like, how do you live a life? I don't think it's one or the other. And I think it's there are these, you know, we can talk about like in the last year, just in the entertainment business. There are these stories of personalities who are the people. And I'm not talking about sexual misconduct. I'm just talking about like, who's an asshole? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and you hear these stories, successful people being a complete nutter, maniac, asshole. 
And then you uh, you do that. You told me once that when you get your makeup done, you quietly ask the makeup person who's the worst person you've ever worked. Oh, with. I know. I, you know, it's not the <laughs> it's not the makeup person. It's Basecamp. Oh, uh, base the person camp. to run. Yes, because Basecamp, the the uh, the Basecamp person who runs Basecamp, they know it all. They see it all because they see who gets out of the trailer when, when they knock, when they show up. Basecamp is the key to the production. Whenever I have run anything. I talk to Basecamp every day because Basecamp has the temperature of the set. And yes, I know one person in particular has been the f- the fan favorite of the worst person that they've ever worked with. But you have told me this, and I will take it to my grave. But I, I will, I will, yeah, there it is. Uh, <laughs> but there, but there is, um, but there is this idea, right? Like this idea, like perfectionism only comes in two in two sizes, or or at least that's like, in the nineties. I think that's a very thing it's like i yell and get my way or i i am i think michael mann is probably the other way michael mann's like i'm gonna be on this guy on the nose to the grindstone i'm gonna work i'm gonna make a 180 page script and and i think there are two sides and i think a lot of times when you're the the quiet person you look over at the bombastic person like maybe i should just be more bombastic and and you know and what can you get more with and sometimes people when people are scared of you they work better but sometimes when people are you know treated with well i think all the time when people are treated with respect, they act better. But it's like, there is this, I think, idea of like, who should we be? Uh, you know, and, and this just came out recently too about Vince and Hannah. I think Pacino has felt very, you know, look, this comes after Sound of a Woman. This is the Renaissance. Pacino has like taken like four years off here, right? Like I think he makes um, Revolution, right? And then doesn't make another movie for four years. So this is kind of his comeback era where he's Sound of a Woman and this kind of bigger Pacino devil's advocate performance. But this performance is, you know, he said it in this uh, clip. He's like, uh, yeah, we made this decision. We never showed it. But like Vincent Hanna chips cocaine. First of all, I've never heard the term chips cocaine. I never heard chips either. Which I love because that means that like Pacino knows cocaine terminology that's like from like the 70s that we don't even know and i like but i think when i hear chip cocaine i feel like he takes like a small bump i feel like a a small bump of cocaine but he's like we didn't want to show it because the minute you show him chipping cocaine you start to feel like he's a bad guy but when you think of the movie with him on audience and moralism yes and i think when you when you look at it of course he chips cocaine this guy is fucking you know, running at all hours of the day, like whenever he's he driving in a car, sleep. he's driving fast. Like He's like, he, I'm going to go take a nap. No, I'm not. He's an adrenaline guy. You know, he's an adrenaline guy. And I was watching the movie with that idea that he chips cocaine. And when he walks into that, uh, into the room to catch Xander Berkeley with his wife, he's wearing those sunglasses. And, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is like him covering up his eyes because not, you know, it's day, you know, it's like he's just... He's on a bender, but it does bender doesn't have to be like cocaine. Like he doesn't, it's like Sherlock Holmes using heroin, right? It's like, I feel like it just gives him a push, but it doesn't make him like sloppy. It just kind of, a, it's, he needs the next level. Like he needs the next thing. By the way, I will say that, uh, I know we talked about that TV scene, also based on a true story of a guy, came home, caught his wife cheating, didn't know what to do, flipped out and took his own TV. <laughs> So like, again, like you're talking about a movie where everything is like, oh, that is based on a truth, true story. (laughs) I mean, I guess you have to be on coke to do this line delivery. I just want to get mixed up with that bitch. Because she got a great ass. And you got your head all the way up it. Jesus. Oh, BC, now BC, I have a different theory about that. You do? I do. Because 
I think that persona is, I'm going to put you off guard. Every time we see him with a informant or a suspect, he's got this bravado that makes you afraid of him. I think that that is the performance of Pacino as crazy cop, good cop, bad cop, crazy cop. Like he, cause he's like, you know, when you see him with the chop shop dealer, the way he treats them, the way that he goes into that club, you know, like those energies, I think that's him putting it on of to be like, oh, who's this guy? He's going to beat the shit out of me. Like the way they scare the fuck out of Hank Azaria. Like you're like, oh, right. Like he's just yelling right. at him. Like, like you know, Hank it's like, didn't oh. even know that was going to happen apparently in the scene. He was like, oh my God, that was surprising. But wait, yeah. does that mean that he, that Pacino then is like treating his wife like a suspect? I told you when we hooked up, baby, that you were going to have to share me with all the bad people and all the ugly events on this planet. And I bought into that sharing because I love you. No, well that that I think is cocaine. Well, that I think is cocaine. Like I think that I think it's like I think like, like I think that there are these moments. Like it's like I feel him. He did a bump of cocaine that night because it's a crazy ass night. There's been a crazy day. He's not stopped, and he comes home, and then that's that scene. Um, I, I I like it's it's weird. It's like trying to figure out where he does it. I always think he does like like to me. I feel like he does a hit right before he gets on that helicopter. He's like, bang, gone. He's gone. That's it. You know, we <laughs> well, got seven hours. You know, it's like that. Like, but that driving, I don't know. Maybe I, mean, I'm, I want you know. to talk about that scene too. But like for the baby scene, you know, Diane Venora said that like when she was on set doing heat, that she kept asking herself on that set, who has the power in this room? Mm. You know, is it with Pacino or is it with Michael Mann? And she said that ultimately she realized Michael Mann had all of the power in that room. So like his quiet power still trumps the baby power. But, Mm. uh, you know, to kind of tie all this together and talk about the use of music, there's this kind of parallel thing that I really like, you know, because this, this film is showing us how, you know, Pacino and De Niro are linked not just intellectually through respect, digging each other's MO, thinking you're doing a very good job and how you're working it. Like, wow, you got me. I can't believe you got me. Let me try to get you back. Um, you know, and having that kind of mental link that he first shows us in the, um, in that, in that uh, robbery, abort, aborted robbery scene, you know, where you're like looking at De Niro through like an x-ray vision almost. Um, and they're kind of cutting back and forth between the two men's faces as they're like picking up on each other's vibrations and De Niro right. decides not to do the crime. But the one that I really like is there's there's two moments where Pacino is like using his spidey sense that we have seen now that he has connected with De Niro to be like, he's in town, he's not in town. He's in town, he's not in town. And you know, when he's like, he's in town and he's right, Michael Mann plays this kind of mystical music underneath it. Mm. He's here. Neil is still here. I can feel it. How long? And I feel like that music is almost saying, like, yes, there is a strange intuition here. They are linked. These men are connected in ways that we can never quite unexplain. But in the other scene that you're talking about, when he is like, now he's gone, he's gone, there's no music at all. And I feel like that is Michael Mann implying that the link is in some way broken, that he's wrong, that he that he's just saying that because he needs it to be over. You know what? Neil is gone. 
flying like a bird. Come on, Vincent, how do you know? We still got bait. Maybe some time. Got, got, what do we got? What do we got? Bon voyage, motherfucker. You were good. He's right. Right? His instinct is right. Uh, he is gone. And unless De Niro makes a fatal mistake, which he does. And so it's, it's, I think what you see in that moment is defeat. Like there's no, like, we got him. Like there's like, he's, that's what I'm saying. These men are so self-realized. Like he's not like, he's not going to chase, he's not going to continue chasing him. It's, it's done. He's going back to his hotel, take off his clothes, go to bed and sleep for, you know, what he says, like sleep for 10 days. You know, it's like he, he is aware that he failed. And I think that that moment needs to be empty. You know, that's an empty moment. Um, I, 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 think yeah. he's, I think he's trying to break it. I think he's trying to be like, no, I, I think he can't take it. I think he's tired. So, yeah. yeah. I also think he's like mad and he doesn't want to say like, you fucked up or I fucked up. Like, it's just like that, those outbursts, those little things are just like, it's kicking the trash can. It's, it's, it's like he is, he's a monster too. You know, he's like his, his prey got away. His food got away. Like he, he will forever be unsatiated because he didn't get this guy. His job is to get this person. It's the, it's the biggest failure that he could possibly have. Although I would like to nominate a second failure. Mm -hmm. We also know that Pacino is the cop called to the Wayne Grove serial murder case where he kills like a young teenage sex worker. Mm -hmm. We know he's on that case. He's there. He shows up. He's talking to people. He totally drops that case to keep working on the De Niro case. Well, that's not robbery homicide. Yeah. But, but is, yeah, but De Niro like interests him more. And I kind of feel like if Pacino had cared more about tracking down that serial killer, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But how did they get Wingro? I forgot now. I'm like for because they got him. They got Wingro. So they don't done. Oh wait, 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 wait. Wingro tells the cops about it because he's trying to get De Niro in trouble. But I don't think they I think they think he's a rat. I still don't think they know that he's the murderer. So like they get their man, like and Wingro comes to them and, and tries to rat out the crew. And I think that this is all part of the master plan because they know that they can dangle Wangro and that could maybe be their last ditch effort to get De Niro. So that's why he calls up, he goes, call up every pawn broker, call up every person you know, let them know that Wangro is in this hotel under this name. And that's how uh well, yeah. that's how the information gets to De Niro through, yeah. you know, uh John For Voight. Sure. But what I'm saying is I think they're using Wangro as bait. And I don't think they know that Wangro killed the teenage sex worker. Hmm. But this is something I am very confused of. And, you know, I'll admit it. While I'm talking about things that confuse me about this plot, when De Niro is driving to the airport, I'm not sure he has the money. Did he even get the money or did they lose all the money in the shootout? Was it no, all he, I, I believe that he has. Does he have the money? Yeah. I mean, like and, he was and running. He too, and I, I think they have, like, he has the back, he has a backpack on, he gets the thing. I don't think they have all the money, but then they also are paying off different people. Like, that's how they pay off Jeremy Piven. That's how they, they have their, their scores and things like that. And I think in Heat 2, it's described that John Voight had taken all that money that they had and put it in different accounts. Because that's how, like, uh, Chris gets into Mexico. They're like, don't worry about it. We have this money here for you, but you can't access it 
Like because he, even if they only had one of the bags, that's like three million. So yeah, that's one bag would be nothing. enough. Yeah, like um, the, the actual real life, um, the actual uh, real life Macaulay. I think he was shot over like thirteen thousand dollars, which feels like wow. so and, sad. Even back in like the sixties, that's and that's in Chicago, really by the little. way, too. It's a very different yeah. place uh, than L.A. I mean, just as far as like what the culture is. Um, but but anyway, I hear what you're saying about like, well, does he really care? Well. I think, you know, Pacino tells you exactly what he wants you to know, which is I am who I'm hunting. He's not hunting Wingro. He's hunting the bigger fish. Wingro is fine. Capture Wingro. He's not after Sizemore. Like, I'd like to capture Sizemore, but he's after De Niro. He wants the brain. He wants the, like, he wants to go to the head. Like, he doesn't care. Like, he's going to continue to get everybody, but the goal it's not the crew. The goal is not it. It the, he's not a cop on the beat. He's trying to take down the big. He's trying to take down the score. The score is that. I mean, it is funny though because that changes. Like in the middle of the movie, when he doesn't even know that much about De Niro, and De Niro is just the loner. They're referring to it in that stakeout as like the Chorito gang because they don't know right. that he's the head. And I think yeah. that's really funny, like how his knowledge of the group changes. But, you know, I, I do think there's something like I want to take down the guy who challenges me and is like me and maybe some other girls will get killed in the meantime and it and I don't care as much. But it, it's the Sherlock Holmes Moriarty idea. And I think about White Heat the same way. It's like it's two people at the top of their game working at each other. Like the cops in White Heat are incredibly smart. We talked about how they, you know, do all the logistics in the street. I think we could talk about this as like, you know, the number one Heat fan. Uh, our famous Heat fan, Christopher Nolan, you see that with Batman and Joker in The Dark Knight Rises, right? It's like, I get you. I get what you're doing. And we're both working on this level of, you know, it's my chaos is different than your chaos, but it's both chaos. It's like this idea of it's the greatest challenge. And that, I think that that's what we always want to see is like that these two forces of nature coming at each other, you know, and and trying to make it, and trying to figure, I mean, it's The Rock and Vin Diesel. I mean, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, like, how can we best each other? Well, then that um, means we have to talk about the scene. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this scene is interesting because don't you feel like this coffee shop scene, which is shot so simply over the shoulder, right? Tight close up. They didn't really shoot much coverage of it. Uh, apparently, this is take 11. They probably did about 25 takes. Uh, it's mostly take 11, non-rehearsed. These are just the facts of this scene. Uh, non-rehearsed because De Niro is like, I don't think we should rehearse it. I think we should just do it. So they talked a lot about what the scene was. But what uh, what Michael Mann wants is, he wants it in these two shots because if De Niro moves, he wants to capture Pacino reacting to that move, right? Because it's like, is De Niro moving for a gun? What are they doing? Like they're kind of countering each other's body. So that's like, let's just talk about, those are like the, the, the brass tack facts of the scene. But then like, and I think then, then you talk about like, oh, the scene, the scene, the scene. And that's really interesting. But when you actually like watch the scene, this is an incredibly, like we talk about Ethan Hawke just playing everything so subtle with that scene with, you know, these are two guys that are really, meeting each other in the exact same level. And there's so much stuff going on behind the eyes. I'm always fascinated by what little distraction there is. Like they're sitting at a restaurant. They're sitting at a restaurant I miss 
I miss mm. Kate's. It was a restaurant that was like on, on Wilshire. And it was kind of, to me, one of the only restaurants to meet somebody for lunch in that area. So I'm okay. very sad that it is gone. But, you know, the close-up is so tight on their faces that there's not even any wasted effort of being like, they're drinking coffee or they're having a whiskey or they're eating a piece of toast. Like, I don't, you can't even see their plate that they're sitting on. You can't even see it's the a table. tight close-up. Because it is it's- just their faces. I don't think they even punctuate anything with a coffee cup. Maybe I'm no, wrong. I they can't don't. picture either. They, yeah, there's, they're just sitting there, yeah. at a restaurant, but they could be sitting in outer space. They could be sitting in a vacuum, you well, know, for, for all that the the backdrop is. Like, that's how stripped it is. To, to just me, their it's their POV, right? It's, it's the POV of both of them. They're studying each other intently. What can I glean from this? Because I, I think that that's the decision is why. Have, I mean, this is, again, also based on a true story that they had this cup of coffee. But what? why? Why are you having this cup of coffee? It's not because you admire them. It's because what can I learn that's going to be to my advantage? And they're just trying to stare into each other's... Like, no one's giving up information. They're going to be honest. And they're going to be truthful. But it's like doling it out. And it's interesting how they both do it because De Niro is much more guarded and Pacino is... I love this performance of Pacino here. Like, you know, fuck everybody who's like, oh, he's so big and whatever. Like, yes, he definitely has those performances. But this, like, the acting on a dime here, like the way that he's so familiar and fun and like he's. He's like a snake charmer to me. Yes, like he's kind yes. of weaving a little bit mm-hmm. and seeing if he can get under De Niro's skin. And De Niro is immobile. De Niro is very much like, you will not get under my skin. I'm not even going to move. Yeah. I mean, that scene is a powerful scene. I don't think it's as bombastic as other like famous, like this is what I'm talking about, about the appreciation of this movie. I didn't, I I started to make a list of this on my letterbox of like movies that I appreciate now more as an adult than I did as a child. And I think that this is about, you know, a lot of the times these movies are about like life, right? It's about like, Oh, I'm I'm looking, I'm not just looking at the, the, the moment. Like, I think this scene gets a lot of talk, but it's like, What's actually going on in this scene isn't like, I don't know how to say it. Like, it's cool that they have this scene, but I don't think of it as like the centerpiece of everything. Like, I don't, I think you get a lot, like, it's interesting to see them come together. It's interesting to see them uh, share with each other, but it's like the, like the want of the scene is bigger than even what I think the scene gives you. Does that make sense? I don't know. Like I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with it. Like I love this scene. I think it's a beautifully done scene. I think it's an incredibly well acted scene. I think it's a great written scene, but it's like, um, well, I guess maybe, I don't know. I I don't, I don't even know if I have the theory of what I'm saying. Yeah. I think I would say that this is not a scene that advances the plot as much as declares the entire film's intention. Right. Like, I see you, you see me, here's the roles that we're playing. I'll have to kill you. I might have to kill you. This is how it works. We are announcing that I am the cop and you are the robber. Absolutely. And admiring each other for that. You know, yeah, I think it's, well, you know what it is. respecting. Yeah. I think where this scene works and why it's so effective is what's not said, right? It's like what you're gleaning from the situation. And I think it's one of the rare examples where we can see this scene done by two different actors and see the difference 
of how it could be, right? And and uh, we talked about it briefly, but Michael Mann had the script for Heat. He turned it into a pilot. He took his 180-page script and made it into a 90-page script. Xander Berkeley, who is the man that uh, Pacino's wife is cheating on, played Wayne Grow in that. He's also in this one, the only actors being both films. Um, but it was a very, it's it's very much Heat. I watched it. Uh, but it's different. It's very different, too. I mean, it is half the time. It's, you know, three hours versus 90 minutes. But you see this scene. And you don't get the same feeling from their scene to this scene. I mean, you'd agree to that, right? Yeah. I mean, even let's take a listen. I am never going back. Don't take down scores. I am never going back. Then don't take down scores. I do what I do best. Take down scores. You do what you do best trying to stop guys like me. I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best trying to stop guys like me. And not, and not, this is not a slam on any acting choice. And it's a different way it's shot and everything like that. Yeah. But those and are the same lines. And still finding himself as a director. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. mean, this movie, that movie is, you can tell like the budget of it makes the shooting very weird. Uh, yeah. And then there's all of what we bring to it as audience members, like being like, it's these guys, the guys who are in Godfather 2, but didn't Shirley seem right. to get the I, guys I guess, who are the biggest? Yes. Like it, there's yeah. us bringing that, you know, and man talking about it, you know, being like, talking about how he sees these two men as different actors. Like he said that Pacino is more like Picasso staring at an empty canvas. And then he makes a series of brushstrokes. And that um, De Niro is more like an architect. Like he builds hard detail by detail, constructs his characters. And he compared it more to like I am Pei. Is it to get to see these two actors who I feel like maybe I'm being judgy. Maybe this is just me as a little kid getting them confused because they were both so huge when Mm -hmm. I was very young. Getting them confused, but being like, oh, to see them working together in concert. I can now like distinguish them and distinguish their style a little bit more. Distinguish the energy they bring to a Well, yeah. Which I I had a lot of trouble with when I was little. Kind of like I had a hard time telling Bert, what is it, Bert Reynolds from Tom Selleck. Very difficult when I was like a little kid. But I think that there's something here too. This is also at the tip of their renaissances, right? And for better or for worse, like De Niro's coming off of Goodfellas. And I think this opens them up to a whole nother generation of, People, I mean, of course, he's always going to be known for all of his amazing performances, but there is like a difference between 70s and 80s De Niro versus 90s and 2000 De Niro. You know, it's like, and the same thing with Pacino. Um, I guess what I'm like, what I'm looking at and what I, I love that description that they're both different actors because, you know, Pacino notably is like a give me the costume, give me the, like, give me the specifics and me go do it. And De Niro, you know, for him, he was like, I'm going to learn how to case a bank. I'm going to learn how to fire this gun. Like it was all technical. And I think that that is, you know, a very interesting thing. I think, you know, the scene, I, I think what I'm reacting to is I love this scene. It's a great scene. I, I it, it truly is. But I also feel like my reaction to it is it dilutes the movie to be like, it's just about this scene, right? Because it really is like, it's like, yes, the scene is great, but the movie, it's only great because of the movie around it, right? Like, it's not like, I think you could take that scene of, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't know if I, know if I feel, like, I think I appreciate this movie so much that I hate it being like, but this scene. Like, okay, you know well, what how I, about it, this? Yeah. Maybe the comparison then isn't even just comparing this movie to L.A. Takedown. It's comparing this movie and this scene to the next time. 
De Niro and Pacino acted together in the movie Righteous Kill, which, by the way, uh, you know, came out in 2008 and has an 18% fresh on mm. Rotten Tomatoes. It's a cop. Man, you come off saying it's a cop. We got a predicament. De Niro or Pacino. These bodies are drifting in your direction. Drifting or being pushed. If you don't back off, you will regret it. Whatever happens, I'm not taking it down with me. Righteous Kill. Rated R. Starts September 12th. This is a movie with the two men in it together, and it is awful. It is absolutely awful and there's nothing in that movie that even comes close to this scene and and probably the best thing you could say about righteous kill where they're just doing this they're yelling at each other they're cops and they both think the other one might be like a murderer blah 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 blah, blah, blah. it's a very complicated convoluted plot um my favorite thing about it is just that it put the two men on the most awkward press tour where they would like do interviews together like here here's a clip of the two of them doing like a tv interview with brian williams which just gave me the most like Awkward secondhand shame, even witnessing what it was like to try to get these two men to talk to you. You've been a thug, you've been a fucker. Um, <laughs> what, what? Was that acceptable okay. the way you just said it? See that? Uh, <laughs> you just on the line. Don't give me that face because now I think I'm going to get killed. Uh, and, and speaking of that face you just gave me, yeah. you, you both have this weapon you can use as actors. Do you ever give that like dead eye look to like a poor person who pulls you over or a waitress do you ever just throw uh, yeah. it on somebody sure. on the street just for fun we sort of don't need to sometimes yeah. because it, it it comes with the territory i i was i was driving and i drove uh, past this guy's parked car and i knocked his rearview mirror off totally totally my fault of course so i stopped naturally he says look at my mirror what did you do i said well whatever i'll take care of it you know whatever i rolled down my window he came to the window saw it was me and he said no it's all right he Don't surrendered worry. yeah <laughs> do fans come up doing you guys do you get that a lot do you get people doing you because they've they want you to talking to me <laughs> It's just, it's so awkward. It's so awkward. It's yeah, so awkward. And, and you get that whenever you listen to these guys talk about heat, too. I don't think they want to let you into their process. Uh, or I don't even know if they even know what their process is or what they are. Like, And I think people want to be like, what was it like? And I think in their minds, this is at least what I'm gleaning from the multiple things that I've read and heard. It was just a scene. Yes, they are these two actors, but they're not looking at it like, oh my gosh, finally we get to spar, right? Like, I think that they're just looking at it as, I like this character. Like, I think they're they're looking at it the right way as actors playing these characters against each other. Yes, their styles are different and stuff like that, but they're just acting a scene. And I think maybe that's my reaction to it. It's like, this is just a really good, well-written scene with two very good actors. You know, you know I and would it's, say, yeah. like, they're actually reacting to it the way that their characters are. We're both professionals. Right. Let's suss each other out. All right. right. There you are. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's the only time the movie kind of crosses each other because there's, you could make a movie that's just completely Pacino. You could make a movie that is completely, uh, you know, De Niro. And I, I, yeah, so I, I love the stillness of it. I love the way that, like, like you said, that that Pacino is like a snake charmer. I love the way that De Niro does, you know, let his guard down. Talks about this this woman that he has, and I and I think he does that. I think he's also working his own charm and logic. Like, what what is it? What are you feeling? What are you what are you getting at here? Like, you know, like 
telling me about your dream. And then he's like, he's trying to also figure out what's going on. But also it's like, I think there's an element of both of these characters. Like, how do you do it? Kind of be more like you. You do something that I don't do, but we also are the same. I think there is like an element of them. Like, can you tell me the secret of me that I can't unlock that I know is broken? Like, how can I fix that broken part of me? You know, I think, you know, and it doesn't mean that they have to be changing who they are, but to see somebody there is is really interesting. You know, I, I wonder what their real relationship is going all the way back because the, the, one of the earliest things I could find was actually uh, from a magazine called um, Screen Stars, like a fan magazine in mm-hmm. 1977. And it had them linked together in a little blurb. And the blurb went something like this. Robert De Niro just introduced Al Pacino to Bernadette Peters. And Al Pacino is in love with Bernadette Peters and they're going to get married. And that story just made me laugh. The idea of them like hooking each other up on dates with Bernadette Peters, who I absolutely love, a marriage that did not come to pass at all. Right. You know, I don't even know if they actually dated. I don't even know if that story is completely made up. But just the idea of these two guys in the 70s, really only like a decade into anybody knowing their names, less almost, being like, hey, we're actors in the city. It, it just kind of piling around. Like if there is that deep connection between them that has, that if they do have a history like this, a tapestry right. like this, they're not going to tell us, honestly. Well, and that article's probably a lie. Well, I mean, I think it comes down to a very simple distinction between them. I think that Pacino is a stage actor and De Niro is a film actor. And to watch those two, like, disciplines kind of come together are really interesting. Like, I, I think that, you know, that may be the crux of what's so interesting about this scene is the technique is so different. And we see, obviously, what you're getting out of it is so different. I like the guy that, that played the Vincent Hanna role in L.A. Takedown. You know, it's different. It's got, But he's still got that cocky edge yeah, to him. Yeah, he's younger. Uh, the guy who played the, you know, De Niro's role is, I don't, he looked too young to me to be who he is. You know, like, I, I feel like you want some age on these characters, too. But uh, Some patina. Some patina, yeah. baby. But yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I know that's a really like shit way to like break it down. But I think that there is something about like that. Like, I think there's always something a little bit engaging about Pacino as an actor where he can he he's going to get you to smile. He's going to like he's going to he's going to be the guy who kind of pulls you in, even as the devil. Like, you know, he's he's chewing the scenery and he's he is your friend, you know, and I think that like he's a great, you know, that's I think it's his turn in. Godfather is so amazing because it's like, oh my God, you watch him go from this one guy to the other next. Uh, whereas like De Niro, I think always keeps it a little bit at an arm's reach and, you know, it's not aside. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but yeah, she knows so to the left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that there's something interesting about that. Like to see these two greats who are very different, you know, approach something but I, I think you're right I think at the end of the day I think what I what I like about this scene is I think that they didn't put more weight on the scene than it needed to be they were like we're gonna do yeah. it we're gonna get it right we're gonna we are we trust ourselves enough not to rehearse it we're gonna and like Michael Mann said you only get something 100% once so why waste that in rehearsal you know and De Niro's like you know most people don't know how to rehearse so why bother rehearsing unless you're working with people who know how to rehearse and and you know I think that Pacino wanted that rehearsal because I think he's used to the, the stage and then they all get together all three of them because Michael Mann will say often like I'm 
also in character. I'm in character as the film, which I love the way he describes it. Like he's like, I, you know, so he's like, so you have these people coming together and it is, this is where the movies collide. They are two movies. They are like, so this is an interesting moment where not even collide. They intersect in the night. They, they, they just see each other in the night. And I love that. Like it's, 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 um, you know, this is kind of a cool, it's, it, you know, in a weird way, we talk about who's the best James Bond or whatever. It's like, it, and that's what we're getting to see is like, is Daniel Craig or Roger Moore? Is it, you know, it's like, well, they both are interesting in their own rights, but like, wouldn't be fun to see them play a scene together. Wouldn't it be interesting to see the, the, the different Spider-Mans, which we just saw in Spider-Man. Uh, you know, that's kind of the same thing. It's like, oh, it's, it's different takes on the same idea. I love this. I wonder who from our era of great actors is going to go full Dunkachino. Hmm. I, like, I can't imagine. Do you think Joaquin Phoenix will ever go full Dunkachino? Do you I think, think Rami Malek will, will ever go full Dunkachino? Casey Affleck? I'm just trying to hmm. think of our like last best, best, best actor winners. I actually think that everybody's going Dunkachino. Like I do. I just, DiCaprio going to go Dunkachino? DiCaprio can go Dunkachino. You know what it is? It's like, I mean, it's like, you know, you got to get him to a certain age. But I also just think that like there's a... there's oh, Eddie Redmayne going Dunkachino. Oh, uh, yeah. But he's gone <laughs> Dunkachino. They all have done these like big fantasy films where they're scenery That's chewing. That's yeah. Like, you know, it's like they're like, they're, it's it's all there. It's, you know, <laughs> and I, I think they can still be great actors, but they're not afraid to look foolish or silly and... I think there's a difference, you know, there is, they, they all play these very big roles. Like, I, I think there's a difference now, like, you know, how people play stuff. I mean, look, you know, I'm still here as Dunkachino. If you're talking about Joaquin Phoenix, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there is, I think there's not a, there, if anything, it's like, how far can I push it? Ryan Gosling's gone Dunkachino. It doesn't mean, Dunkachino doesn't mean bad. I think that Dunkachino scene uh, is amazing. Uh, You're saying Dunkachinos are delicious. I'm just saying that, like, Dunkachinos, I'm sure they are delicious. Seeing How can that much cream and sugar not be tasty? I mean, we got to play the clip. Something's brewing at D&D. Wow! Dunkachino! It's not Al anymore. It's Dunk. Dunkachino? Don't mind if I do. What's my name? Dunkachino. It's a whole new game. Dunkachino. You want creamy goodness? I'm your friend. Say hello to my chocolate blend. Attica, who are lucky light. This whole trial is out of sight. They put me back in with hazelnut too. Caramel swirl. I know it was you. Everyone wants my Dunkachino. Can't get enough of my Dunkachino. Kids from 7 to 17 lining up for my Dunkachino. What's my name? Dunkachino. Dunkachino. Like, he's doing that. He's going Dunkachino, but he's going full Dunkachino. Like, to me, I'm like, Fuck yeah. Like, if you get a great actor doing that, and that's why I think the Meet the Parents movies are so good. When Robert De Niro is directed by a great comedic director, he's giving an amazing performance. It's fucking funny. Like, he'll go 100%. It could be silly, but he's still... Like, Midnight Run is an amazing, you know, comedic performance. What you're saying is the one thing you can't do is you can't go half-calf Dunkachino. It's you can't be go half calf. You got to go okay. half calf. By the way, let me just say one more thing. Sorry, but we're talking about this scene and I'm thinking about it. I'm ga- gathering my thoughts about it. You know, we're talking about that with Midnight Run is this whole scene of heat, you know, on some level too. It's two actors in very different styles, just paired. For, and buddy cop movies are that, you know, to a certain degree. But, but I, I like Midnight Run as the example because 
Charles Grodin is so different, right? And it's like, and and you know, Training Day had that. Like they're like it's it's just putting very different personalities next to each other and going, what is this? And that's kind of our favorite scenes in movies. Most of McCarthy and Bridesmaids. It's you know, there's so many examples of just great fun pairings. <laughs> well, then to wrap this all the way back up to what we were talking about at the beginning with this film coming out in the the Tarantino era, there is a connection between this movie and the beginning, the dawn of the Tarantino era, which uh, is this. It, it, it hinges on the character of Nate, who's played by John Voight, who's actually like a, a figure in Heat, too. He shows up a lot in the book. Uh, so Nate is based on, you know, a real life criminal, a yep. guy named Edward Bunker, a, a guy who basically had the childhood that you hear uh, Ashley Judd get threatened with here. Like, here's how a criminal yeah. is made. You wind up in foster care. That's what basically Edward Bunker's life was. See, if you don't betray Chris, you victimize Dominic because he becomes an orphan when you go to prison as an accessory because you got no living parents to take it. So he ends up state raised in foster homes, juvenile facilities. Then he steals a car. Then he winds up in gladiator academies like Gino and Tracy. Fucked for life. You know what happens, because you've been there. Dominic didn't get a chance yet to choose his life, but Chris did. If you give up Chris, you get off clean. He wrote a great book, too. Yeah. Um, it's like, what's that book called? My oh, gosh. I can't remember. He became a big writer when he was yeah. in prison. Somebody showed up and gave him a typewriter. An actress showed up and gave him a typewriter, and he began to write because he was uh, the youngest inmate at San Quentin when he was 17 years old. Wow. Edward Bunker, by the way, is actually the guy who met Danny Trejo in prison and then helped Danny Trejo get cast in his first film in Runaway Train. So there's like a whole connection. But Edward Bunker plays the guy that John Voight is based on, and Edward Bunker plays Mr. Blue in Reservoir Dogs. Oh, he's wow. kind of the shaggy blonde guy. He has like a mustache. Yes, he's yes, older. yes, yes. He's got the heavy Southern accent. They don't make a big deal of Mr. Blue's character, but you can hear him talking right here. When you hear the Southern accent kick in in the Madonna conversation, that's him. Personally, I can do without her. I used to like her early stuff, borderline. Once you got out into that pop, don't preach phase, I tuned out. But you guys are like making me lose my train of thought here. I was saying something. What was it? A great distinctive face. There it, it is. All comes around. It all comes, comes around. You know, Amy, I think the thing that I'm so pissed off about now and watching it, and I think there's a heat energy going on in, in our city and, and time, but uh, that this movie didn't get nominated for anything. It's crazy. It's absolutely wild. Like when we talk about the the world and, and that these, you know, like, why not? Like, what, like, what are the reviews? What are people saying about this movie? Yeah, no, you're right, because the Academy went all in, you know, at least recognizing uh, Mohicans with nominations that really went after Insider right after this. I yeah. love The Insider. But yeah, it skipped over this one. The reviews were positive. The reviews were very positive, but some did some takedowns. One of the more negative ones came from Janet Maslin at the New York Times. And here's what she wrote. Three hours is a long time. It's long enough to shape a Godfather caliber crime story or long enough for an overly polished veneer to wear thin. And as heat progresses, its sensational looks pale besides storytelling weaknesses that expose the more soulless aspects of this cat and mouse crime tale. Extraordinary actors, clever settings, a maze of plot, and a screenplay with nearly 70 speaking roles do not change the fact that heat is fundamentally hollow and its characters have not got much to say. This could be a Western, it could be Les Mis, it could be and is about high-tech gangsters who live in beach houses and cover be covet bearer bonds. But whatever the milieu, 
The dynamics of the struggle are predictable, and Mr. Man does little to approve upon them with an overdose of moody romance. Thus, heat creates a hugely complicated web of relationships, though they only occasionally create the illusion of depth. The film's habit of editing together various wife and girlfriend scenes serves less to underscore a prevailing theme than to show the perfunctoriness of half of the story. I, I, gotta, I do agree with that because there's a montage like about an hour in where I'm like, okay, so every female character is just in this movie to try to reassure a man. You're fine. I love you. I'm still with you. I like you. Like that is basically the bulk of what happens. Oh, now you bring this happens. up at the very end, but I'm going to say this. Ah! <laughs> I will say, uh, I think this is a movie that came out at the wrong time. I think this is a movie where the landscape was changing and this felt old fashioned. And I think if you go in and you look at it as what, what it, you know, maybe it felt maybe old school in the moment. And I think that people were looking at it as a cops and robbers thing. And there were so much more interesting things and, and things that were, uh, you know, shot that were like, uh, like this is very plainly shot. It's gritty. It's cool. It's interesting. And I think that it stands the test of time, right? Like we're talking about heat now, 25 years later, or 20 years later, whatever it is. And, uh, but in the moment it was, bucking the trend and I think that people didn't want to look at it and I think it was deeper than a lot of people have assumed it to be it's not just about cops and robbers it's just not about uh you know De Niro Pacino together it, it it's a slow methodical film about you know the prisons that we all live in and and the worlds and the way that we want to be perceived versus you know can we be happy and fulfilled can we be you know who are we really like are we just chasing our tails you know there's a lot of bigger questions in this and i think that that is why it exists and why it's influenced so many filmmakers and why it's you know you have somebody like christopher nolan who clear like i love that he's such a fan of this movie it's so interesting well then i guess we'll have a, we'll probably have a way of seeing if a different time will make a difference because michael mann clearly can't let this story drop he can't let these characters drop he's wrote a whole ass novel about it and now he's saying that heat 2 will probably become a miniseries which might be a way of this living which i on. think it's such a and better way to do it it does seem right i will say having read heat 2 and there will be no spoilers on this i find it a little weak and kind of repetitive on top of this movie okay um very repetitive to be honest and i'm not sure I'm not sure it's an improvement or does anything better. I think it does some things worse, and I think it makes this maybe look more formulaic when you stack them next to each other. But I'm also a a book fan, not a book critic. So what do I know? There you go. I love it. Uh, (laughs) But you know what? Maybe we should continue this conversation and see how this movie is interpreted by someone who loves it so much. We've mentioned it a handful of times. I think that White Heat, you could definitely make an argument that Michael Mann probably was influenced by White Heat on some level, at, you know, at least in that crime story. I think that now it would only be right for us to talk about Christopher Nolan doing his take on Heat. You know, whether or not it's conscious or unconscious, it is, I think, very, very much apparent in The Dark Knight. So I think that that should maybe be the way that we we end this series or, or kind of start to come to a close in this series with uh, The Dark Knight. <laughs> I think that's really fun. We started this series with Superman and ending yeah. it on The Dark Knight, I think, makes a, a holistic, cyclical kind of sense. I love it. So take a listen to the trailer. You've changed things. Forever. 
see to them. You're just a freak. Like me. Nothing. No name, no other alias. Clothing is custom. Nothing in his pockets but knives and lint. Evening, Commissioner. Why so serious? You can find uh, Dark Knight wherever you get your movie streaming, or you can go also to the Hoopla app, which is uh, a way to support your local public library to get it for free on the Hoopla app. It's amazing what you can do there. Um, Amy, cannot wait to continue this discussion of heroes and villains. Uh, a big thank you to our producers, Josh Richmond, Devin Bryant, our engineer, uh, Ryan Connor, our amazing uh, team at Earwolf who helps put this entire show together. And of course, our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Uh, we will see you next week for another episode of Unspooled as we talk about The Dark Knight. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.